Hello and welcome to the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast shares these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy today's episode. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with John Wrigley. It's September 29th, 2022. We're at Jay Wrigley Vineyard in Sheridan. John, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, as we usually start our interviews, let's ask you a nice, easy question to start, which is why wine? Uh, it is a rather complicated story, uh, but I started out in uh, college enjoying beer, as many uh, people do, and uh, that was uh, kind of the beginning of a beer making craze. So that was would have been about through uh, 1980 through 84-ish, right in that range. So a lot of my friends were into making beer and to be quite frank, most of it was horrible. You know, barely, barely could stomach it. And so I thought that I would try making wine and I was not a wine drinker. I uh, was really a beer drinker. Uh, that was through my college years. And so I went down to the beer store and they had a wine making kit. And it was uh, a package that had like a gallon of concentrated grape juice, a little packet with some what they called Camden tablets, and a little packet of yeast. And then the, there's some instructions were on it, which basically was like take one can of grape juice, pour it in three cans of water into it, sprinkle the uh, yeast onto the, into the container, cover it with a cloth, and wait for three or four days. So that was my first introduction to wine, and so I had converted it to uh, a carboy and uh, <clears throat> tasted it, and the first day it was, I'm going, well, that's not terrible, and that isn't glowing <laughs> by any means, but I said, that's not terrible, I'll give it another try. So I had, you know, a glass and then put the cork back in the jug and uh, next day came back and tried it again. I said, well, it's still okay, but, you know, something's changed. Um, it doesn't taste like it did yesterday. So, I thought, well, I don't know. I got, I got the lawn to mow and different things. I got stuff to do, so I, I can't stay here and worry about this right now. So two or three days went by and go back and tried it again took a sip and I just went, wow, this is horrible, horrible. I could not figure out what had gone wrong. And so for me then, because I was very curious, it just lit a passion in me, I have to figure out what went wrong. Of course, through my research, I figured out that what had happened is the wine had oxidized and it's no di and started spoiling. It's no different than if you have a bottle sitting on your counter and you leave half a bottle open for a week and go back to drink it, it's probably not going to be palatable. So <clears throat> from that, it really kind of lit a fire in me and I started ordering books from uh, uh, different libraries and reading and trying to educate myself about it. And I had grown up on a farm uh, in Idaho and so I knew about farming and uh, you know, cultivating crops and harvesting and th that sort of thing. But uh, this was different because this was the processing side of it. And so uh, I started doing a lot of extensive research. And by that time I had graduated from college 
and uh, had gotten a job uh, in the insurance industry. Uh, it was a very poor time in the uh, economic community for a job, and so uh, one of the few jobs I could get out of college in the early 80s was as an insurance adjuster. But what that did was allow me to travel extensively, and so then when I would travel through California and places like that, handling claims, I would stop by the UC Davis bookstore and I would buy their textbooks. And <clears throat> so as I would travel, whether it was on a plane or in a hotel room or night at night, I would read the textbooks from UC Davis, which is one of the premier uh, winemaking colleges in the United States. So essentially I taught myself how to make wine. And then I started buying wine from other uh, growers, uh, but in the interim, I experimented with all different kinds of fruits, um, wild uh, things like elderberries and uh, gooseberries and things like that that uh, aren't typically used uh, to make wine. But I was just experimenting, trying to understand the process. So for me, it was that's what really hooked me was the process itself. I had to figure out what went wrong and how to fix it. So that, that's how that all evolved. We'll come back and pick up the story there in a second, but I want to back up a moment. Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, life before you discovered wine. Tell us about kind of growing up, uh, where you grew up, and uh, what made you decide to go to college, where and why? So I uh, was born in 61 uh, in uh, Burley, Idaho. And my family operated a, a large ranch, which was homesteaded in the early 1900s. Um, and uh, so I was one of the kids on the farm. My dad was a partner in the farm with uh, his brothers and uh, my grandfather. And uh, so we uh, operated uh, uh, row crop grounds, uh, that'd be uh, corn, for silage, uh, for feed for the animals. And we had uh, uh, several thousand head of sheep, uh, several hundred head of cattle. Uh, my dad was responsible for the hog operation, so uh, that was primarily my focus growing up feeding these animals. And so if you weren't going to school, you were working, uh, raising crops, processing crops, driving tractors, uh, getting crops in for forage for to get through the winter months, things like that. So that was really how I grew up. And then I uh, attended, uh, graduated from Burley High School and uh, <clears throat> went to uh, Idaho State University. And that was the closest university uh, to where I lived. And so I had two steers and I sold my two steers bought a car, and everything I owned I packed into the back seat of my 74 Chevy Nova and drove to college, and uh, which was an unbelievably eye-opening experience, and it was, you know, an educational opportunity, but also a, a tremendous opportunity for growth and development as a, you know, a, a young adult or somebody aspiring to be a young adult. Uh, but anyway, so a lot of the heritage and the things that we have for this property here are things that I brought from my experiences when I was on the farm. 
so our label, which is the connected JW, is actually a free-handed uh, stylistic version of my uh, grandfather's cattle brand um, from, I believe, 1906. And so we happen to have one of the original brands here. Um, but uh, so I've stylized it. And uh, so I try and pay a little homage to my history. Um, but I didn't want to go back and be a farmer in those kind of scenarios. But also most college kids don't really have the kind of assets behind them to start a 200 acre vineyard. And so it took me a period of time to uh, acquire those assets. So out of college, I started working as an insurance adjuster, worked for a number of different companies, eventually ended up as a uh, national catastrophe claims manager for uh, farmers insurance. And I managed some of the really big catastrophes around the country, uh, hurricanes in Florida and the Gulf Coast and big wildfires in California and things like that. And so that's where I actually made my way into a management structure where I had enough resources to accumulate the funds to um, purchase our property here. Uh, but I still had the knowledge of the farming and how to develop a property and uh, the basic horticultural knowledge to bring something from a, an infant of a vine or plant all the way through harvest. So it really is a lifetime of experience um, that I brought with me to this particular um, project. And uh, along the way, I happened to meet my uh, wife, uh, Jody. Uh, who was uh, very enthusiastic about joining me here, participating in it. And uh, so I actually proposed to her on this property on the weekend that we discovered this on a property hunting trip. And from there, we've uh, built our house here and uh, started our family here. And so this is a very, very special place to us. Well, let's talk about discovering the place then. You, you mentioned earlier that you'd spent quite a bit of time self-teaching yourself about, about wine. At what point did you start to think about investing into something like this, and how did you go about finding the place to do it? Well, uh, I had lived in California. as one of my places that I had uh, spent time in the corporate arena and uh, loved wine and gravitated toward, towards it, um, did not like distilled spirits quite as much. And uh, beer, of course, becomes kind of pedestrian after a while. And so wine I found particularly interesting. And so I live very close to Napa Valley. Uh, and so spent a lot of time over there. Uh, but I also tasted in a number of different uh, AVAs uh, and began to understand the differences in wines from different areas. And I realized that that was, well, that, I really would like to do something like this because I, I felt that I had the knowledge and the basic understanding of uh, viticulture that I could grow, uh, be successful as a grower and as a winemaker. 
And so I had looked around uh, for a couple of years in California uh, and eventually found some property that was in the Amador County area. And there's some beautiful Zinfandels that come from that area, uh, brought in originally by the California Gold Rush, uh, the miners that came in. And there's still some old vines around there that are that old. But uh, really what uh, turned the uh, tide for me is I, I happened to be an avid fisherman having grown up in the Northwest and spent many, many years fly fishing and tying my own flies and things like that. And, but I, I uh, was single at the time and decided, well, I want to go up to uh, Oregon and go salmon fishing. So I had flown up here and uh, had gone out salmon fishing on the Columbia River and was on my way back to the hotel and driving. And I said, wow, there's a winery. I didn't even know Oregon had a wine industry. So I uh, pulled in and I went in and there I was the only person in, inside other than the uh, attendant and uh, said, well, I'll, let's see what you got. And so he started pouring wine and it was, it was an eye-opening moment, hard to describe. It was just like, wow, I was so blown away by the Pinot Noirs that I just said, if you can make wine like that here, and as a bonus, get to go salmon fishing, I'm all in. So I, uh, I immediately then began looking for property here in Oregon and uh, doing a lot of research on it because I didn't really understand how the Oregon wine industry ha had flourished. You know, the four or five families that had first started here and uh, Mr. Elrith and uh, some of the other people that was early on. And... Uh, <clears throat> So I started coming up here and I'd made probably five or six trips here to Oregon, tasted around the area until I had found wines that really uh, I found to be distinctive. And so some of those wines that I found after I had sat down with a map and circled the wineries that I liked, I found that all of them followed in the Coast Range foothills. So for my palate, that's what worked for me was the soils in the Coast Range foothills. And because I was a farmer initially, um, I recognized that it doesn't really matter what crop you have, it's the soil that makes the crop. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's the most rich soil or whatever, but there are certain characteristics about some soils that yield what you specifically are looking for. And so, for an example, some of the things that uh, make a great uh, uh, wine grape may be terrible if you're trying to raise alfalfa, you know, or, or soybeans or corn or things like that. They all have different requirements. And so by that tasting process, I felt that I had found what would be suitable, and therefore I then started looking primarily in Yamhill County um, in the Coast Range foothills. And when I would have uh, time off from my job, then I would come up, fly here to Portland, and uh, I would spend the entire weekend just driving up and down the roads. I would do things like I'd stop and taste the blackberries. I'd make notes about how they tasted, and I would have the soil maps, and I would make uh, notes as to the quality of local fruit, and then there's a number of other things that you can look for that will identify whether uh, land is suitable for grapes. 
So for instance, when I found this property, I talked to a number of people that said, uh, you're too far to the west uh, and your elevation is too high and you'll never be able to grow grapes there. But I hiked around through the property and you know, at that point this was just a Christmas tree farm, uh, had been originally planted in cherries, uh, hence the name Cherry Hill, but that goes back to the early part of the last century and middle part of the last century. And uh, hiking through the timber and everything, I found uh, uh, old pear trees, um, lots of apples. So if you have pitted fruits, then you have enough heat units that can ripen grapes. So therefore, if your pHs are compatible, uh, then you can uh, do a very good job of raising grapes to maturity. So when we planted out here, um, to my knowledge, we were one of the furthest westernmost uh, vineyards that was planted uh, in the Willamette Valley, at least in this area. And I'm sure that there are some people around that had smaller, you know, private dozen vines or something like that. But from a commercial standpoint, I think we were the first that was this far the west. And uh, so anyway, that for that I'm uh, particularly proud of. Um, took a gamble uh, and it, it worked out. So very, very pleased about that. So describe for me then the first time you saw this property, what made you excited about it? What made you think this was a place worth taking a gamble on? Uh, so the very first time that I saw the property was driving up Cherry Hill Road. And uh, you wind around Cherry Hill and you don't really see this property until the very last corner. And then you look up and there's this broad face of this uh, hillside that you can see, and at the time, uh, a good portion of this property was planted uh, into Christmas trees. So you could actually see rows on the property, which allowed some visualization of, oh, I can see how this could all be put into a, a vineyard. Uh, and that was the uh, westernmost portion of the property, the easternmost portion of the property was in, uh, it's called reprod, it's just timber land that was, is not at the age that it could be harvested. And I think ours was about 10 years old. So it, it was uh, Douglas fir, but it was very small. And so uh, when I saw that, I hiked the property, uh, didn't uh, make an offer or anything at that point, uh, but it actually was advertised for sale as a quarry. And the quarry on our property was the quarry that supplied the gravel to build the federal prison uh, over here in Sheridan. And uh, so uh, Jody and I were there with my sister, Karen, and uh, so we stopped off of uh, Gopher Valley, which is another entrance to the property, and we hiked in past all of the no trespassing signs, and uh, uh, to and you know saw the quarry. And the interesting thing about the quarry is, it's about a 160 foot high cliff face, and uh, what it does is allow you to see all the geological history off of this property 
because it's been carved out of the same slope as the soils that are above it. And so you could see where there were the marine sediments, you could see the volcanic intrusions through it, and each of those uh, yield very, very complex soils that are on our property that yield amazing wines because of the complexity of the soils. They aren't singular, they're very complex because each one of those soil types yield a different flavor profile for the wines. And, uh, and then the other thing that was really a nice uh, feature about all of that was that was an operating quarry. And so in order to buy the property, we had the quarry with it plus the farmland and so about two-thirds of the property was uh, income producing while I was still working corporate. I said, well, that's a pretty good way to purchase that property because the tenants are making the payment. And so we did that for several years until the Christmas tree leases were up and we had ground that we could uh, uh, clear and plant. And so then we... Uh, uh, planted that into uh, rehab, and then also the uh, what was forested that was the young, uh, we cleared that and those were the first blocks that we planted. What year did you find the property and what year did you plant the property? Uh, let's see, I believe we found the property in 2005. Um, I had actually, I, this is a personal story, I might Somebody might find it humorous. Anyway, it was 2005 and I had been working Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans for my company managing that. And uh, so I finally had a, uh, a weekend off after about a month and I called my sister and says, hey, I'm gonna go to Oregon and look for vineyard land. You wanna join me, that'd be great. She goes, well, that's fine. I've got a friend that would like to come too. She likes wine. He said, well, I don't care as long as she knows that we're looking for wine and it's not just a party. So I land at the luggage carousel at PDX and uh, there's my sister and there's Jody at the time who I didn't know. And I thought, wow, she's kind of cute. And uh, we actually end up having our first kiss on this property about uh, a day and a half later. So from there, we, our romance blossomed. We ended up... Uh, marrying and moving up here and had our family here and have de developed this place together. That's pretty fantastic. Yeah, I, I have to give most of the credit to building the business to Jody. Um, she's the one that's just an unbelievable business mind and uh, a marketer, a promoter. I, I'm the like I would call him the heavy lifter person, you know, the person that knew the farming and the, the plowing and didn't mind uh, 12, 14 hour days, uh, new winemaking. Uh, so those are the, we divided into different arenas and um, it worked out very good because it's a combined success. I would not have made it without her and, but I do suspect she might've made it without me She's just pretty good at that. So anyway, uh, it's been a combined effort and very, very proud of what we've done. So anyway, that's, uh, that's how that all evolved. Take me through some of the, the milestones for you uh, 
were there certain kind of markers along the way that you're particularly proud of? Getting the first vines in the ground or getting getting certain things built or getting wine produced? What were the kind of notable memories for you on that on that part of things? Oh, man, that goes back. So our uh, when we moved here, um, that was during a time period where there was a very difficult time finding housing in uh, anywhere around. So we had moved here uh, in 2008. And uh, we uh, ended up renting a small home in McMinnville. And so I would get up early in the morning, drive out here, start working on the ground, trying to get it ready for planting, picking out stumps and sticks. and Because we were really doing it ourselves. We didn't just hire crews. Uh, but also at the time we had young children. And so I think some of my most fond memories our Jody would come out with a picnic with the kids and would let them just run around naked on the property while we would have a picnic and should take them home. They were just filthy and from, you know, running around in the dirt, but uh, that was pretty special. Focus on the, I want to focus on the farming and the wine production for a little bit here. So you mentioned, obviously, you had a farming background. You had an idea of, of, of how things would work. As you started to lay out the property and started to get vines in the ground, were there particular was it, was there a particular learning curve or surprises for you as you started to get that part of things going? Uh, well, I actually believe that I uh, had enough of a background that I understand uh, a little bit about uh, uh, farming practices. Um, it's a little different farming flat ground than on up here, and so. You know, we have some pretty significant slopes. And the thing that you have to be very careful about is not always can you lay out your rows so that it's uh, optimum for being true north and south or whatever. Uh, you have to be very careful about how you lay things out because if you get a side hill and roll equipment or things like that, then uh, that's very dangerous. And so... Uh, the first blocks that we planted were everything that we could plant that was as true north and south as possible. And so that's one of the things about this property that was very beneficial is so we have east-facing slopes and we have north-south-facing slopes. Uh, so we really are able to maximize a large percentage of the property with uh, rows that are uh, can be farmed with a wheeled uh, tractor straight up and down uh, and we have a lot more plantable ground that's uh, premier ground but they're not exactly north and south and so to farm those I just placed in you know uh, the second or third evolution of the property uh, where we would have a, a, a tracked vehicle like a, a dozer or a cat that was able to uh, be a little bit more stable when it's uh, driving on a side hill. And uh, so I've actually only had one accident uh, on the property uh, involving a rollover of equipment, and that was about during COVID. And uh, I'd never had an accident since I was a kid on a tractor and happened to be turning to turn and go straight uphill, but on the side hill at the bottom, the lower tire uh, collapsed a gopher tunnel, and uh, that really was almost the last thing I remember. Um, 
but anyway, total detractor and uh, so those are the kind of things that can happen if you're not paying attention to how you're laying out your vineyards and things like that. So up to that point, I felt that we were, you know, pretty safe. But nonetheless, that's just one of the hazards of farming on ground that isn't flat. But you have to have the slopes for the cold air to run off. Otherwise, you start having frost damage and things like that. So... Um, I'm a lot more careful now, <laughs> but uh, you know, accidents are called that for a reason. <laughs> How did you choose and, and acquire what you were going to plant here? Uh, well, I would uh, credit Willa Kenzie Vineyards for this. So when I first uh, came here, um, I'm not 100% on this, so I could be wrong, but I think Laurent Montague was still involved with Will Kenzie at the time. And one of the things that they had done was they had done individual clone bottlings of the Dijon clones. And so you could go into Will Kenzie and buy like 113, 114, 115, 777, 667, Pomard. And so that's how, uh, other than that, everything that I had tasted uh, through the basically many, many dozens of wineries around were all blends of something. That was, and so I sat down and uh, tasted every one of those, shipped a case of them home, uh, tried them over the next few months, uh, trying to and then evaluating them until I settled on the clones that I liked um, and then all of that is just a good guess because the soils there are different than the soils here. There's some similarity but nonetheless soil is probably the primary contributor to uh, how the flavor profile uh, of that particular grape is uh, or that particular clone is. But anyway, I settled on 777-115 and Pomard as the first that we would plant here. And uh, so we plant that in the block that we call proposal block. And that's because, you know, after just before we bought the property, Jody and I hiked up here. There were no roads or anything. And uh, I think it was December the 28th after we had signed on the paperwork and we hiked up here and I proposed to her here. So that block that we were standing on is called proposal block now. So anyway, that's how we ended up getting the clones. Uh, since then, we've added uh, others. I, I like the 667. It's really a nice structural clone. I kind of attribute it to being like the frame of a house. I mean, it just, and then everything else that gets added to it is uh, the finishing. Um, we've added 828, the uh, notorious suitcase clone that came in from France. Um, and uh, let's see, we have uh, Vadensville as well we've added. So those are the clones of, we, of Pinot Noir that we have here. What, what made you choose well, specifically the 828? How did you go about acquiring it and, and what made you want to add it to the, to the mix? Well, it was very intriguing. First of all, I didn't really know the story until I had heard in passing about it. Um, and uh, so I, I had <clears throat> heard rumors about it. And uh, 
to make things complicated, there's two 828s. One is shrouded in mystery. The other one is named 828. One is very droopy growing. The other one is very upright growing. And um, I just took a gamble on it because uh, I had been doing a Google search and saw on a website from a writer named Rusty Gaffney. He's called the Prince of Pino. And he had an article in there about the 828 and talked about it. And so I go in and do a Google search and uh, wow, that popped. Uh, of all things, what happened was I got a hit for a auction catalog for a nursery in California that was going out of business and was having a trustee auction. And on the auction calendar or catalog was like 2,500 vines of 828. So I just took a gamble and I didn't know until, and planted them and I didn't know till they uh, had a little bit of growth on them, whether I had the droopy variety or the upright variety. And so I had the favored upright variety after a period of time. So it's really a quite remarkable uh, clone, extraordinary, frankly. Uh, so obviously, you mentioned, we talked about your kind of your farming background, and so tell me about the the process of learning your vineyard, setting up your vineyard, learning your vineyard, and and figuring out the way to sort of maximize the quality of what you get out of the vineyard each year. Well, uh, very first uh, plantings we made, uh, the research I had had said uh, narrow spacing, narrow rows. So I started with seven by four spacing, believing that would be uh, seven feet by four feet. So seven feet for the width, four feet for the uh, row or between vines. And uh, that worked fine for the first plantings, but remember the first things I planted was straight up and down. Subsequently, I've had to go to uh, eight by four because the, if you're on a little bit of a side slope, you get drift with your equipment and your tractor. And so then you start cutting into the roots and the bases of the other plants. And so we've planted probably um, two different spacings. I prefer the seven by fours, but the eight by five or eight by fours and fives are ne uh, necessary just simply because of the way the slope of the ground. Um, and so that's created a little bit of a challenge. If I was to redo that, I, I wouldn't have that kind of spacing because it makes it difficult. You're, you're duplicating your equipment that you need. So it was an unnecessary expense to get a mower or a disc for that extra foot uh, when I probably could have just planted it still seven by four and been fine. But if that's the most expensive mistake I ever made up here, I'm pretty fortunate. So, so I'm curious, uh, describe for me the, the terroir of this place and what do you feel is unique about this property and the grapes that come from here versus anybody else? So I, I suppose, well, this is the research I've done and uh, I suppose somebody can challenge me on it at some point, but as I understand it uh, from the research I've done, uh, when the Nestucca range was formed and the lava flows that occurred that formed that from 
about McMinnville North as very, very thick, dense lava flows. And that is the parent material for the soils that are in the, like the Dundee Hills and what's north of uh, McMinnville. And that's why you go up into the Dundee Hills and you have singularly jory soils, uh, volcanic, high clay capacity, high water holding capacity. But from McMinnville South, what we had was uh, fingers of lava running across ocean bottom. So they were more like rivers and then they were spaced in between with just ocean bottoms. So they didn't have that solid sheet uh, of magma that was flowing. So as they uplifted, as the, we have the uh, San Juan plate that's subducting under the continental plate, that's what's created these coast range foothills and that soil then gets lifted above the water and begins to deteriorate and that parent material becomes soil. Um, we have a, a, a different mix of soils. So uh, what we have are uh, jory soils that are very comparable. The fruit that comes from that, those areas are very comparable to what comes out of Dundee. But then the uh, fruit that comes out of our sedimentary soils uh, those soils have about a 30% lower water holding capacity. The berries are smaller. Uh, they're a little more tannic um, because you have a much, and the, uh, because the berries are smaller, you have a higher skin to juice contact ratio. And so they're very intensely flavored. Uh, so when you put all of those together, the wines here are very unique because they're highly complex. Um, but it's really driven by the soils. Tell me about the winemaking process for you, obviously tied into the farming, but tell me, take me through the kind of the sort of the annual nature of winemaking for you and what are the biggest moments of decision uh, and sort of speculation for you in the annual process? There are things that uh, you can say are optimum. Uh, so let's say that you didn't have outside influences and you could just let your fruit hang as long as you wanted. Uh, and when it was perfectly ripe, then you would harvest and you'd have incredible wines. The reality of it is, is we are in a position, all of Oregon, that when fall comes, you get a huge migration of birds that come out of Washington and Canada that start working their way south. And their robins and cedar waxwings are two of the primary ones, but starlings are very common as well. And so if we are fortunate and have a fall that we don't have the rains uh, and storms up north, then the birds will stay up north and, because they have adequate food sources. As soon as the rains do start, they start pushing flocks of birds to the south. And those birds only fly as far as they need to go to get something to eat. So you can be driving up and down the highways and you'll see them lined up on the power lines just sitting there or in trees, just clouds of them. And uh, you can get cedar waxwings and starlings that will move in and they'll take out hundreds of pounds of fruit in an hour. And so we have bird cannons and things like that. So farming has become difficult uh, as we get larger population bases because some of the things we use for scare tactics for the birds to get ourselves to harvest 
is offensive to neighbors. They're tired of hearing a cannon going off all day long. Uh, you know, broadcast speakers that are shrieking birds. Sounds like a, you know, a, a bird is being killed by a hawk or something like that. So that's becoming problematic. Um, and then what ends up happening is you end up doing things like netting the fruit. Very, very expensive process. So the farming costs themselves continue to increase and they just get passed along. It's so, you know, unfortunately wine gets more and more expensive, um, but it's a byproduct of some of the things that we have that are environmental influences. So those are things that probably people struggle with. Uh, the prevalence of mold and mildew uh, in this area is uh, not uncommon, um, particularly in areas that don't see a lot of wind. And that's one of the factors on this property that's so beneficial is we are uh, in the Coast Range foothills on the north rim of the Van Duzer Corridor. So what happens is as the valley heats up in the day, creates a vacuum and it pulls cold or cool air off the ocean through the Van Duzer Corridor. So every day, uh, probably around four o'clock in the afternoon, we start getting these cool breezes that come out of the west. And so what we enjoy is full photosynthesis, but because we don't have as high a heat, we're not getting the sugar accumulation, but we're getting physiological ripeness of the berries. And so the flavor is there and we're able to let the fruit hang a little bit longer or as long as we can stand the birds. Um, but because we're relatively isolated out here, uh, you know, most of the birds are opportunistic and they'll focus in areas where there's quite a few vineyards. So that's one of the factors that really makes wines unique here is the presence of that, uh, that breeze. And I think that's probably demonstrated most from 2020 when we had the big fires that were here and uh, filled the valley with smoke because uh, everybody, Dundee area, Chehalem Mountains, uh, anything over in the Yola Hills, they just uh, really had a difficult uh, problem because of the density of the smoke and uh, grapes will absorb that into the skins and then when the wine is made, it, it becomes prevalent. We're fortunate that we had these winds that would come in and then clear our area out. We never really had a density of smoke that we think actually impacted our wines because we, everything was blowing from the west and so it blew any smoke we had here uh, back towards the Eola Hills. And so that uh, pretty, uh, unique feature about this property here. And there's starting to be more and more people that are moving up into these hills around here and buying property. And you can see more and more vineyards starting up here. What about once the grapes come off the vine? Tell me about your process, uh, winemaking process, uh, how you sort of learned uh, making wine at a commercial scale and how your sort of methodology has changed in the years, if it has at all. My methodology has changed when one of my experiments turns out to have revealed maybe I need to change things. So that's happened good and bad. But basically what I do is uh, I have my primary protocol 
and that's where my large fermenters, uh, uh, we, we ferment and process in what is our customary uh, protocol. But I always have a small experiment going where I'm trying something like a different enzyme, a different quantity of enzyme for extraction of uh, color. Maybe it's a different yeast. Uh, maybe it's a hotter ferment. Any of those things I'm trying, uh, but it's typically in a quantity that is not going to cause a financial impact to us, or um, if it fails, if I have to pour it out, is not going to be a, a problem. Uh, but those are incremental changes I do each year. I, I, uh, I think we have a pretty solid protocol. One of the people I thank and think uh, helped me probably as much as anything was uh, Robert Britton. Uh, extremely generous of his time um, and on some problems that I had and allowed me to uh, correct some problems that was highly educational. So uh, really a very, very generous person. Uh, we started our first winemaking at uh, the Coleman's, and uh, so that's where we—that's where I first uh, made our first wine. And uh, so we moved from the Coleman's up here to our property, and then we started here. And uh, so I have attended a, a number of winemaking uh, uh, seminars, and I try and maintain contact with as many winemakers as I know. Um, Yamhill Valley Vineyards, uh, Ariel Everly is one of a, just a unbelievably talented, gifted person who shared her knowledge with me freely. And I think generally uh, the people in Oregon, the winemakers are kind of different. They're all more concerned about raising brand Oregon as a whole, as opposed to just benefiting just themselves. Um, I go tasting regularly still at other places and we'll visit with the winemaker if they're there and uh, I don't think I've ever had anyone say, oh, I can't share that with you or, or something like that. It's pretty much in the winemaking community around here, it's an open book. And I think part of that is because everybody recognizes each of our sites are so unique and different that what I do may not necessarily work for you but I'm not gonna withhold what I do in case you can use something from it. So I think that's a, a, a something that's probably unique around here and so I extend the same courtesy to anybody else who comes up here. Tell me about the, the finished product in the bottle. Uh, what are you aiming for and what would be sort of the ultimate takeaway from someone who tastes one of your wines? One of the things that I find as a, compliment if somebody says that's a really nicely made wine it's not my style or it's not my preference you know, that's sometimes how they'll prefer so they say I don't like Chardonnay but wow that's really nicely made or it, it could be I I don't really like Syrah but wow that's really a nicely made Syrah that's what I like I like that I have delivered uh, the best of my skills to somebody, it's up to them and their palate to then decide whether that's suitable to them. Because there are so many variations. There's over a thousand 
chemicals and uh, components that go into a bottle of wine uh, that are natural, that any one of them could have a more significant impact depending on the heat units for the year, wind, uh, type of yeast you use, all any so many different variables. At least if it was well made, then the rest of it is kind of out of your hands. And uh, so that's the best you can do. Just bring your best to the table and let the consumer decide if they like it. So we're talking about uh, kind of the, you talked about building the business. Uh, we're talking about kind of where it is now, uh, the slogan, all things are possible. Tell me how that reflects and captures what you've built here. Well, all things are possible started with the dream with two people standing up here looking at a Christmas tree farm. <laughs> And uh, everything else we've done, you see this here, we built this by hand and we planted it and we farm it and Jody is the salesperson and she graciously allows me to be the figurehead, you know, when people come in you know, and I'm the winemaker and that sort of thing. And so, um, I mean, it was a dream and I think we've achieved it because we came out to an area that did not have uh, uh, vineyards or established winery. I do remember uh, when we bought this property and we told some people what we were gonna do, they said, uh, you'll never make it. It's just too cold over there. You'll never grow a crop. You'll never get it ripe. Uh, and that's kind of scary when you plunk down seven figures for a piece of ground that still needed a lot of work. So, so it turns out those same naysayers are buying over here. So that's not a bad deal. Uh, obviously, uh, core value is very important to you and the business here. So family, uh, integrity and character, initiative, personal and professional growth, respect, diversity and inclusion. Superior, superior quality and service. Um, tell me about coming up with those and how you feel your, your sort of your actions so far have reflected those. Well, of course, when you're in a corporate world, you're just bombarded with everybody's uh, beliefs and core values, etc. Um, and so we sat down as a team. Um, with some people that are our board of advisors and we tried to come up with the things that uh, were really important to us as we evolved. Um, and uh, we like to look at the longevity of our employees. We like to look at the size of our wine club, um, the, how we are, we fit as a role within the community um, how we support the uh, local community at large, whether they're wine or not. Um, and those are the things that we came up with that says, you know, if, if, if we were a customer, this is the kind of place that we would go visit. And I guess it's, you, you could distill it down to, you know, treat other people like you'd like to be treated. And so we've tried to become a fixture in the community. We allow funeral services in here, um, weddings. Uh, it's, we hold meetings for the school board, uh, for the police department, the fire department. It's just because a little small community doesn't really have uh, 
a lot of resources. So we offer our resources that we have uh, to the members of the community um, to try, try and help advance our local area because it is a, a rural area and it can be, you know, there are some people here that don't have the resources as other people in other areas and so we try and be, um, I, I think stewards of the community is a wrong, wrong phrase, but good citizens of the community would probably be a better way of saying so that we contribute. We may not necessarily write a check to somebody uh, to support their campaign or whatever, but we provide to the community in different ways. Um, we haul all of our cardboard boxes down to the food center so that they use our cardboard boxes to distribute the f meals for the week for people and, you know, little things like that we're constantly doing to try and help where we can. Obviously, with a with a business like this, you you have you've built a community of, of family and friends who are helping you out at the kind of important parts of the year. So, tell me about harvest production, bottling times like that, where your friends and family have come together to get things done. What are some memories you look back at from 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 moments like that? <laughs> oh man, I think the first one that's first and foremost that just leaps out at me when you talk about harvest was. Uh, I uh, can't remember the exact year, it was probably 2013, I'm guessing. So uh, one of my family members had an unfortunate incident over in Idaho, and uh, so we were uh, left to go attend a funeral. And uh, when we came back, um, we drove up the hill and up above the property here, all we could see was just a huge cloud of birds. And they were in the Pinot Gris, and that's the earliest ripening. And so that's where they were focused, and there, must, there were tens of thousands of them. And we said, we're going to lose our crop. So there's my mom and my aunt there. My mom's in her 70s. My aunt's a little older than her. Jody, me, we're out picking Pinot Gris, trying to save what we could. And I think we uh, became so exhausted after one bin of fruit, uh, all we were able to save was maybe 30, 40 cases worth of Pinot Gris that year. The uh, birds uh, finished it off. And it's because our cannons had run out of propane while we were over in Idaho for our funeral. And so that was that was a lesson, but it also uh, that was a hardship. We got over it, and uh, just uh, we learned from that and recognized that was a challenge. And um, I, I, I guess what's fortunate, we didn't have too much more than that, but they still put a hurt <laughs> at least as far as that that crop. Uh, and so there's things like that that occurs. There's things that happen where um, that are total accidents, uh, mixing the wrong spray and spraying something, and you have vines that wilt, and you go, oh no, hope that they live. You know, just total accidents. Um, 
And uh, there's just things that happen that you just have to pull together and recognize those things happen. Doesn't matter if you live in the city and you got a job at uh, you know, the supermarket or what it is. Everybody has challenges in life and it's not how uh, they manage you, it's how you manage them. And so we just believe strongly, I do, that hey, if I didn't get it this time, I'll sure as heck get it next time. So I just think every day is another opportunity to succeed. We talked a bit earlier about your, your previous profession. I'm curious to, if you want to compare and contrast a little bit your kind of corporate life versus small business owner, winemaker life here. Uh, what are the biggest differences and what are the, what are the things that have kind of carried through? So uh, it, it's, uh, both of them are difficult and it doesn't matter what kind of job you have. I mean, you could be a uh, floor manager at Walmart or whatever, it doesn't matter. You have your own challenges, you have your responsibilities, those sorts of things. So same for me in corporate and same for me here. I've got certain challenges. I've got problems with weeds, I've got problems with birds, uh, pricing of contracts, chemical prices going up. You're managing some kind of problem every single day. In a corporate world, the same thing is happening. The biggest difference is when you're in the corporate world and you're doing that job, it never stops. So at the end of the day, you know the next day is going to be just like what you just finished. There isn't an end to it. Here, you have satisfaction because you go, hey, our fruit's ripe. I'm gonna have, I get to stop spraying now. I don't have to worry about mildew. And then crews come in and harvest and you go, wow, I don't even have to worry about the vineyard at all now for four months. Not actually true, not, but for a period of time, you know, before you have to start doing husbandry practices and mowing and disking and all of pruning and all of that. But nonetheless, there are very distinct chapters in the life of a vineyard over the course of a year that you get past this chapter or on to the next. So you get the little mini closures that are small victories as you move through the course of the year. And then when you finally get everything in the tank, in the winery for that vintage, that's cause for wild celebration. All about the small victories. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, you brought up earlier uh, having a, starting a, a, small, a small business and also having a young family at the same time. Tell me about memories of, of raising your family in, in this place and of, of, of all the things sort of growing together. Okay, this is, a, this is kind of an interesting one because uh, it, there's a little philosophy behind this too. Um, so when we first had a family, uh, well we still have a family, but they were young, they were young. And uh, so it was uh, both Jody and I's first children. So Jordan was the oldest, Hayes was our uh, youngest, so we had two children. And we would come up here and uh, we were living in McMinnville still and I would come out and farm when I wasn't working. So it'd be the weekends, late nights, whatever. And Jody would come out here and we'd spread the uh, blankets and uh, have a picnic and things like that. And then one of the things that we did was we would let the kids just run around naked on the property in the dirt. They just filthy. <laughs> but I think in the end, 
they're very healthy people and maybe exposure to the dirt and all of those things like that helped with their immune system and whatever. But I remember those memories while we were just starting out where we had those very private times up here because um, it was just our place. Tell me about the slogan, all dreams are possible, and, and what, that's, what, what that's meant to what you've built here. Well, we came up with our uh, all dreams are possible, uh, help from staff and our board of advisors. So uh, you're, you're talking about your, you're raising your family, you're talking about being, being your place uh, to start. What was it like to share the place? What was it like to invite people here and to start to start to make it part of the community? <clears throat> I think one of the things that still uh, gets me uh, is that's significant is when you drive up here you don't really uh, appreciate what's here until you crest out on top and then you look out and you go there's this wow factor that is just just grabs you and you just it's as nice a view as there is in the valley. It's impressive. We have, we can see uh, what's left of Mount St. Helens, Mount Hood, Mount Jefferson, the Sisters. Uh, you know, those are 150 mile views. And uh, a big chunk of the valley. It's, it's just, uh, it's unbelievable to live here and that's your backyard is seeing, having this. And it's, uh, it's just remarkable. I spent uh, since 2008 here, and every day it still gets me. It's just so spectacular. I feel very blessed. So what were the sort of skills and experiences that you hoped uh, your life here would sort of give your kids for the future? I think the biggest thing uh, I hope that they take away from this is the ability to have long-term goals and understand that uh, instant gratification is not always possible. That if you really want to accomplish something, you might have to develop a plan that is years in the making. And there may be multiple steps to get there. You don't just say, gee, today I want to do X, Y, Z, and then order it from Amazon. That doesn't work doing something like this. And in between, there's a lot of hours and a lot of hard work where you go, I don't like doing this. But those things are steps along the way to achieve something. And if you do that and you finally achieve that, uh, the depth of appreciation is re remarkable. So if you're thinking back to the, the first day you saw this property, uh, what do you wish you had known then that you know now? I wished, even though I had grown up on a farm, I wished that I had spent some time working in a vineyard operation where I had a better understanding of the equipment that was needed. Because that can really catch you by surprise and you don't have it adequately budgeted. And even though you might find a piece of equipment extremely necessary. It might be a $25,000 piece of equipment you use twice a year for 10 or 12 hours. So there are some things that are expenses that will jump out and nab you that you don't really anticipate. Um, 
I'm fortunate that I did grow up on a farm and have some knowledge of uh, farming and was able to teach myself an awful lot. Um, but there are, there are still things that get you by surprise that you didn't expect. Well, on that, on that kind of same uh, trajectory here, now that you're, you're looking back at, at, at all you've done with this property, is this what you expected it to be? And what, are the, what have been the biggest surprises along the way? It's wildly exceeded my expectations as far as the quality of the wine and the quality of the vineyard. Um, it has surprised me how difficult ha it has been to develop it, like roads, clearing timber, stumping trees, things like that. And a lot of that comes from the need to have really, really heavy equipment, dozers and things like that, that are very, very expensive. So I underestimated uh, what it would cost to develop it uh, as far as the uh, really undeveloped areas where there was timber and then that sort of thing. Um, uh, the rest of it, I think we were pretty accurate on. Um, it's also surprised me a little bit on the winemaking side, how much more uh, involved that part of it is as well. Uh, winemaking is an absolute science, not something you just throw a handful of yeast at a tub of juice and hope it turns out. So, uh, so I, I would have benefited, I think, with a little more time uh, tutoring under somebody, um, or let me rephrase that, apprenticing under someone. Uh, but I'm also a pretty good self-starter and attended as many seminars as I could and you know conversations with people. And in the end, um, to this point, uh, I, I think we've done a pretty solid job. The beautiful wines come off of this property. What are you kind of proudest of on, on that side of things? And what, are, what have been the biggest surprises about building a small business? Building a small business is um, far more difficult than expected. Because when you're in a corporate arena, you have one discipline. You're in marketing, or you're in sales, or you're in finance, whatever. And you focus exclusively in those areas. Occasionally, you'll have your, you know, once weekly or once monthly meetings with the heads of the other departments, but they can oftentimes just be very superficial. When you're in a small business operation like this, you wear all those hats, and so you yourself have to be the one to resolve some of the many conflicts that occur. Uh, from those different, uh, all of those different um, pieces of the business. So, um, but I think overall, it's been easier for uh, Jody and I because it hasn't been one person. Um, Jody is the person that is the genius when it comes to marketing, relationship building. Uh, she handles the marketing and that sort of thing. I, I manage the winemaking, the farming, and then I try and be available for customers as much as I can because it, what Jody's 
one of the J's as well as I, but it was, it's my family's, you know, brand and that sort of thing. Um, and so I try and make myself present. So that piece, that demand uh, is what I probably underestimated because, uh, because we're so remote and so localized that we become part of the community, friends with nearly everyone who comes up here. And so anytime anybody comes up, they say, oh, could John or Jody just pop in and say hi? You know, it's, it's the Olsons, you know, or what, pick a name. Uh, and so you find that the demands on your time, um, you're, you get stretched pretty thin. Uh, I guess that's the price of success. Because the alternative would be not so good. That would be your banker calling you. <laughs> Right, right. Uh, I want to broaden out for just a second and talk about the Oregon wine industry a little bit. Uh, uh, tell me about the changes you've seen in the industry uh, and the, the sort of the, the challenges in it and what the industry looks like today in 2022. Uh, I see uh, some very, very significant changes that are happening now. Um, some of them beneficial some of them i don't know about beneficial but just inevitable um, so the first thing that's occurred is there's been a very large influx of outside money uh, coming into the area uh, investing in uh, the properties here um, other areas in the country are becoming less suitable for grapes Water being one of the key aspects with that, the inability to have adequate water for uh, raising a crop. Uh, and that's typically our neighbors to the south. Southern Oregon is no different. They're experiencing the same thing. Uh, we dry farm, which means uh, we don't irrigate. We probably hand irrigate our vines two or three times the first year, uh, sometimes once the second year. Uh, and then after that, they survive on whatever rain is in, uh, or water is in the um, soil column. And we can do that because we have very deep soils here. Um, so that's highly beneficial. We don't have the costs for the irrigation systems that's typically involved in California and even in Southern Oregon. And so it becomes very desirable when you have what's established as a world-class growing area that the annual uh, farming costs are less simply because you don't have challenges around water. That's not to say that won't always happen, but we're not ha being threatened by having our water shut off and diverted to municipalities and things like that. So I see that as one of the biggest factors is the the, the industry itself up here is going to continue to change and it changes towards the smaller people like us are probably not going to be able to uh, continue for you know longer periods of time. It's going to be corporate driven. Uh, it's really hard for a family farm to survive because you don't necessarily have children that are willing to take it over and continue to, to do that. But if you have corporate ownership, then that's just another uh, group of workers to continue to manage it. So that's really what I'm seeing right now is a big change in the industry. 
positive influences I see coming in is a lot of uh, French uh, involvement. Um, uh, they seem to uh, have brought uh, a lot of resources here. I've listened to speakers in, in um, uh, several different lectures and things of that nature, and I'm very fascinated by some of the things that they say. Taking a trip to uh, France for my own education to see how things are done there, and um, there's a lot of things that I would change uh, here had I had that opportunity uh, when we first started. But uh, uh, there is going to be change in Oregon. That's inevitable. Uh, you're going to see a trend towards the bigger uh, brands, uh, and some of the smaller brands are probably going to either be bought out or just folded. Um, and you'll start seeing bigger and bigger farms. But that's not any different than what you see now. Driving through the valley, you see, you know, hay farms that are four or 5,000 acres. Um, you know, uh, the equipment that it takes to run those type of operations, you need that kind of acreage. And so uh, it's just inevitable that's going to continue to happen. As you look back now, what, what are you proudest of? I would probably have to say that I am proudest that this was a family accomplishment. So uh, I'm pretty sure I couldn't have done it by myself. And um, so I had my beautiful wife to help. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much uh, okay. for your time here today, for your wonderful answers and storytelling. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all our supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have helped make our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you from the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University with a very special thank you to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years. <laughs>